Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. Previously on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious world. It's starting to rain again. It's, the rain has uh, cracked up a little bit. The back motors of the ship are just holding it uh, just enough to keep it from... It's burst into flesh. Get it started. Get it started. It's flying. And it's rising. It's rising terrible. Oh, my. Get out of the way, please. It's running, bursting into flames, and, and it's falling on the morning path, and all the folks between us. This is terrible. This is the one of the worst catastrophes in the world. Oh, it's Four or five hundred feet into the sky, and it's a terrific crash, ladies and gentlemen. The smoke and the flames now, and the flame is rising to the ground, not quite to the morning mass. All the humanity and all the furniture speeding around it. I told you, I can't even talk to people. It's crazy around there. It's it's a. I can't talk, ladies and gentlemen. Honestly, it's just laying down massive smoking wreckage. And everybody can't hardly breathe and talk and screaming. Lady, I, I'm sorry. Honestly, I, I can hardly breathe. I, I'm going to step inside while I cannot see it. Charlie, that's terrible. I can't. I, listen, folks, I, I'm going to have to stop for a minute because I've lost the voice. This is the worst thing I've ever witnessed. listening to episode 189 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the Hindenburg and the most famous air disaster of the 20th century. I'm Don Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. On May 6, 1937, people were gathering at the Lakehurst Naval Air Station in Manchester Township, New Jersey. They were there to see the arrival of the Zeppelin airship Hindenburg, which was completing its three-day voyage from Frankfurt, Germany. The Hindenburg was an impressive silver-colored vessel, one of the largest Zeppelins ever to fly. It was a stylish way to travel, complete with luxurious amenities you'd never find on an airplane today. It catered to wealthy passengers who could afford to soar serenely above the Atlantic Ocean instead of taking a ship over the surface of the rough, storm-tossed waters. The public was fascinated by the Hindenburg, and as it cruised over New York City, airplanes from the Universal Newsreel Company flew above it and took footage of the great ship superimposed over the massive metropolis. But when the Hindenburg attempted to dock with its mooring tower in Lakehurst, disaster struck. Fire erupted from the back of the craft, and soon the airship exploded in flame. It crumpled to the ground, a charred wreck, and 36 people died. So what happened to the Hindenburg? Why did it explode? Was there sabotage or a cover-up of the true facts? Well, that's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, how are we going to start discussing today's mystery? By telling the story of one of the people who was there. Her name was Margaret Mather, and she was an American woman who was born in 1878, making her 58 years old at the time of the disaster. 
Margaret was born in Morristown, New Jersey, and she was a wealthy heiress. In 1906, when she was 28 years old, her brother Frank contracted typhoid and moved to Italy to recuperate. Margaret, along with her father and mother, went along to take care of him. Frank recovered, and in 1910, he returned to America and became a teacher in the Department of Art and Archaeology at Princeton University, but Margaret and her parents stayed in Italy. Her mother passed in 1920 when Margaret was 42, and she then took care of her father until he passed in 1929 at the age of 94. Margaret periodically visited the U.S., but she lived in Rome, where she served as a patron of the arts. For example, she helped support the Russian painter Gregorius Maltsev, who had been stranded in Rome without funding after the Russian revolutions in 1917. Margaret also was one of those people who loved to fly. It had been my dream to fly across the gray, stormy Atlantic. Swift airplanes had borne me over the Mediterranean, over Grecian islands, and through the Gulf of Corinth, over Italy and the Dolomites, over the high secrets of the Albanian mountains. I'd flown through Germany and France and over the African deserts. But Margaret did not like taking boats because she suffered terribly from seasickness, and she always dreaded crossing the Atlantic because of how ill she would feel. In fact, she hadn't even visited the U.S. in eight years. And back then, they didn't have the intercontinental airplane routes that we do today, so you almost had to take a steamship between Europe and America. It seemed to be my fate to cross the Atlantic in increasingly luxurious steamers whose lavish comfort and entertainment meant little to a seasick wretch. But in 1937, she decided to go back and visit her family in New Jersey, and she discovered that she could take the Hindenburg, which was going to be making the trip exactly at the time she wanted. This would be a luxurious trip, and if you've ever been on a cruise ship, you'll hear how much Margaret's account resembles a voyage on a cruise ship, which is what the Zeppelin company was using as a model for travel for its passengers. In any event, Margaret booked passage and traveled by airplane from her residence in Rome to Frankfurt, Germany. I arrived in Frankfurt on the morning of May 3rd in a gentle rain. I saw the great hangar as we flew down. When the officials arrived at the hotel, we had to show tickets and passports, and the luggage examination began. It was courteous but thorough. Every inch of my bags was searched. Every box opened. I had to pay for 15 kilos overweight and tried to argue the point as I weigh 20 kilos less than the average man, but I was told, it is the rule. It was 7 o'clock in the evening, I think, when the passengers were escorted to three great buses, and we were driven through the lovely beech woods to the airport. There, by the hangar, tethered to the ground, was the great silver ship, and at the sight a wave of joy swept over me. We had to wait in the hangar for more passport inspection. I was surprised to see how few passengers there were, and how few women were among them. It had rained on and off during the day, and it was still drizzling as we crossed the brief space that separated the Zeppelin from the hangar. In spite of this, there were many spectators, including a band of little boy Nazis who had been allowed to come quite near to inspect the ship. I love that uh, pre-war description of the little boy Nazis. And yes, uh, there would have been members of the Hitler Youth around because this was 1937 and Hitler was in power, though it would still be another two years before World War II would officially begin. So there was still peace, at least in Europe. I followed the other passengers up the narrow gangway and was taken to my cabin, which was very tiny but complete, with a washstand and cupboards and a sloping window. 
After a hasty look, I went above to watch the casting off. I heard martial music and saw a brass band on the port side. The musicians were dressed in blue and yellow uniforms, and some of the instruments were decorated with streamers of the same colors. When the mooring ropes were loosed, the little boy Nazis scurried over the airfield as we slowly rose. It was an indescribable feeling of lightness and buoyancy, a lift and pull upward, quite unlike the takeoff of an airplane. At ten o'clock, a supper of cold meats and salads was served. As the only unattached woman passenger, I was placed at the captain's right, at a long table where twenty men were seated. Married couples and families were given small, separate tables. And the captain made a favorable impression on Margaret. Captain Max Proust came in late and shook hands with me and with the men nearest. He ate a light supper, drank a glass or two of mineral water, and hurried back to his post. Throughout the trip, he rarely ate more than one course of a meal and never drank wine or beer. He was courteous and genial, but very much on the job. Margaret spent most of the next day, May 4th, in her cabin, uh, resting in her bunk and looking out the window at the angry waves and whitecaps below. We flew high above the storm, but a strong headwind buffeted and delayed us. It sounded like surf, but the ship sailed calmly through it. If one looked attentively at the horizon, the slightest variation from the horizontal was perceptible, but there was no feeling of unsteadiness. I told Captain Proust how much I was enjoying the trip. What a wretched sailor I was on the sea. He was pleased, but assured me that it was one of the worst trips he had made. The wind grew stronger, and the second night the captain did not go to bed at all. But still, one felt no motion, though the wind beat like waves against the sides of the ship. It was almost uncanny. Margaret also started to get to know her fellow passengers who made memorable impressions on her. For example... An American couple, Mr. and Mrs. John and Emma Pans, were returning from a brief business trip. He had flown on the Hindenburg last summer, and his wife had accompanied him this year in order to have the pleasure of flying back. I had after-dinner coffee with them, and I sat with Mrs. Pans in the lounge, knitting or writing letters. There was a family of children, a girl and two boys, whom we liked to watch. They were so well-behaved and enjoying the trip so much. By May 5th, they had reached the coast of North America, meaning they'd gotten across the Atlantic in just over a day, which is way faster than you could make it by ship. They arrived off Canada's maritime provinces and then needed to work their way down the coast to New Jersey, which they would reach the next day on May 6th. On the afternoon of the second day, we sighted Newfoundland. The storms had abated and we flew low and saw numerous icebergs shining white against the stone gray sea with pools of vivid green in their depths, and their forms spreading green under the pale water. Rainbows sprang up from everywhere, and I watched one grow and grow until it completed a perfect circle beneath the ship. That night I slept like a child, and awoke in the morning of May 6th with a feeling of well-being and happiness, such as one rarely experiences after youth has passed. No land was in sight, and it was raining. I ate breakfast, joked with the young men, my messmates, who were always comparing my appetite with theirs. I packed my few things, wrote a card or two, and suddenly we were flying over Boston, Massachusetts. A great elation seized me, joy that I had flown, that I'd crossed the sea with none of the usual weariness and distress. All the ships in Boston Harbor saluted us, and as we flew over the suburbs, we saw cars draw by the roadside and their occupants leap out to gaze at us. Airplanes circled about us, and one or two accompanied us on our way. It was delightful to look down on the gardens. We flew over Providence, Rhode Island, and recognized many villages, rivers, and bays. Lunch arrived early, so that we might be free when we sighted New York. 
We cruised slowly along the sound, and Mrs. Pan showed me the bay on Long Island where her home was, and told me that her son was driving from there to Lakehurst to meet his parents. New York swam into view. The rain had stopped, but there were black clouds behind the tall buildings. We flew over the Bronx and Harlem, then along Fifth Avenue, past Central Park, and then we turned west and flew down to the Battery. There we swung round to the East River, flew over two or three bridges, then across Times Square and out to New Jersey. As they approached their destination, the Lakehurst Naval Air Station, the weather started to turn. The clouds were black and ominous as we flew over Lakehurst. The landing crew was not there, and the weather was becoming worse instead of better. So we flew on to the coast and cruised up and down along the beach, sometimes flying out to sea. It was raining again, and there were flashes of lightning. Not at all dangerous, somebody said. A zeppelin can cruise about indefinitely above the storms. It's not like a plane which has to come down for fuel. We had an early tea, and at 6.30, sandwiches were passed. I refused at first, but took one when the steward told us that we might not land for an hour or two. All at once, we were over Lakehurst. The ship made a quick swing about, and I saw the mooring ropes thrown out. The landing crew drew back until the ropes touched the ground, then rushed forward to draw the ship down. And it was at this point that the disaster happened. Watching from the ground was newsman Herbert Morrison of Chicago radio station WLS. He was broadcasting the arrival live, and he immortalized what happened in the famous Oh, the Humanity clip that we heard at the beginning of the episode. But inside the Hindenburg, Margaret Mather had her own perspective on what was happening. At that moment, we heard the dull, muffled sound of an explosion. Almost instantly, the ship lurched, and I was hurled a distance of 15 or 20 feet against an end wall. I was pinned against a projecting bench by several Germans, who were thrown after me. I couldn't breathe, and thought I should die, suffocated. But they all jumped up. Then the flames blew in, long tongues of flame, bright red, and very beautiful. My companions were leaping up and down amid the flames. The lurching of the ship threw them repeatedly against the furniture and railing, where they cut their hands and faces against the metal trimmings. They were streaming with blood. I saw a number of men leap from the windows, but I sat just there, where I had fallen, holding the lapels of my coat over my face, feeling the flames light on my back, my hat, my hair, trying to beat them out, watching the horrified faces of my companions as they leaped up and down. Just then, a man detached himself from the leaping forms and threw himself against a railing, arms and legs spread wide, with a loud and terrible cry of, Es ist das Ende, or This is the End. I thought so, too, but I continued to protect my eyes. I was thinking that it was like a scene from a medieval picture of hell. I was waiting for the crash of landing. Suddenly, I heard a loud cry. Come out, lady. I looked, and we were on the ground. Two or three men were peering in, beckoning and calling to us. I got up, incredulous, and instinctively groped with my feet for my handbag, which had been jerked from me when I fell. Aren't you coming? called the man. And I rushed out over a little low parts of the framework which were burning on the ground. Outside, Margaret was helped into a waiting car that was being filled with survivors. I squeezed in by the chauffeur and asked him to put me down near the entrance so that I might find my family. Can't do it. Orders are to take everyone to the first aid station. But I'm not asking you to go out of your way. Put me down at the nearest point. I'm not hurt. Look at your hands, lady. I looked, felt sick and said no more. Margaret's hands were extensively burned because of how she had been holding the lapels of her coat up to protect her face from the flames. We were among the first to arrive at the dressing station. I was taken into a room where a doctor or a nurse put antiseptic picric acid on my hands, 
which were beginning to feel as bad as they looked. A terribly injured man was seated on a table near me. Most of his clothes and his hair had been burned off. Someone told me he was Captain Lehman. Captain Lehman was not in charge of the Hindenburg during this flight. That was Captain Pruss, who Margaret had dinner with. Instead, Lehman was an experienced captain who was aboard the craft as an observer on the flight. But he's important to the story, so remember him. Also, by the way, Margaret doesn't mention it, but Captain Lehman was rather short, standing just over five feet tall, so he was nicknamed the Little Captain by people who knew him. And he was quite popular and had a reputation as a very competent captain and engineer. More carloads of wounded came in. We heard howling and groaning, and our helpers rushed out to succor them, leaving the bottle of picric acid with Captain Lehman, who sat steadily on the table with a large piece of gauze in one hand and the bottle in the other, swabbing the acid on his burns. During his infrequent appearances among the passengers, he'd worn a leather coat with fur lining and upturned collar, which partly hid his face. He always looked alert, but genial, with keen blue eyes. Now his face was grave and calm, and not a groan escaped him as he sat there, wetting his burns. His mental anguish must have been as intense as his physical pains, but he gave no sign of either, and when my burns became intolerable and I would reach for the bottle, he would hand it to me with grave courtesy. Wait patiently while I wet my hands and receive it back with a murmured, Dankeschön. It was a strange, quiet interlude, almost as though we were having tea together. I was impressed by his stoic calm, but only when I learned of his death the next day did I realize his heroism. Margaret means that even though Captain Lehman's wounds were much worse than hers, so bad he would actually die from them the next day, he still controlled himself in all his agony and continued to politely hand her the bottle of antiseptic whenever she wanted it. And this isn't the only way in which Captain Lehman would turn out to be a hero. Based on information that has recently been discovered, it appears Captain Lehman's heroism may be greater than anybody knew at the time. Margaret discusses more of what she saw as the authorities tried to help the survivors of the crash, and you can read about it in the article she wrote a few months later for Harper's Monthly magazine, which we'll have a link to. Jimmy, how many people were on the Hindenburg when it caught fire? There were 97. Of those, 61 were crewmen and only 36 were passengers because the flight had not sold out. You'll remember how Margaret was surprised to see how few passengers there were on this voyage. Thus, about two-thirds of the people on board were crew and one-third were customers. Of the 97 people, 35 perished in the disaster. That included 22 members of the crew, and 13 of the passengers. So about a third of the passengers and crew died, but two-thirds survived. In addition, a member of the ground crew at the Naval Air Station was injured and also died, so there were 36 deaths total. At this point, let's back up and take a broader view. The Hindenburg was considered a new and impressive airship, but it was far from the first, right? Correct. There had been many earlier airships. In fact, in the year 1670, the Italian Jesuit priest Francesco Lana de Terzi published a book with a design for an airship. Father Lana de Terzi was a mathematician and a naturalist, and he also had the idea that eventually developed into Braille writing for the blind. But it was his design for an airship that has led him to being referred to as the father of aeronautics, father in both senses, since he was both a priest and a pioneer of the concept. 
If you look at Father Lana Duterte's design for an airship, it looks basically like a boat being suspended in the air by four copper-colored balloons. It also has a sail that can be used to steer using the wind. The things that hold it aloft are the four balloons, which were meant to be four copper spheres that had all the air removed from them. So they contained a vacuum, making the craft lighter than air. And because it would be held up by a vacuum, this kind of craft is known as a vacuum airship. Would that actually work? In principle, yes, you could use lightweight vacuum chambers to make a lighter than aircraft like this. They didn't have the technology to make one back in 1670, though, because the copper spheres wouldn't have the structural integrity needed. The copper spheres couldn't weigh very much lest they keep the ship down, so they'd have to have thin walls. But with walls that thin, once you pumped the air out and created a vacuum, the outside atmosphere would be strong enough to crush the thin copper spheres. As a result, you'd need better materials to make this concept work. We might be able to make vacuum airships now, or we should be able to soon with the revolution that's occurring right now in materials science, but they couldn't back in 1670. And when was the lighter-than-air concept first demonstrated? In China, people had been using small floating lanterns that were a kind of hot air balloon for centuries. But in Europe, the concept was demonstrated about 40 years after Father Lana de Terzi's design. And in 1709, and again, it was a priest that was responsible, the concept was demonstrated. This time, it would be the Brazilian-Portuguese priest, Father Bartholomew de Guzmão. He built a small hot air balloon that he demonstrated for the Portuguese king, John V. He also designed a bird-like lighter-than-aircraft called the Passarola, or Big Bird. But accounts conflict about whether he was actually able to fly in it. And when were the first confirmed flights? Those would come in 1783, when the French Montgolfier brothers were able to fly a large-size hot air balloon. In June 1783, they were able to get one to fly in an unmanned fashion, and then in September, they were able to fly one using test animals, just like when we and the Russians started flying craft into low Earth orbit with test animals to prove it was safe before putting humans up there. I mean, after all, in uh, the Montgolfier's day, they'd never sent up balloons before, so nobody knew how fast the atmosphere thinned out yet. In the Montgolfier brothers' case, they sent up a balloon with three animals in the basket, a duck, a rooster, and a sheep. They figured that the duck was a safe bet and would be able to handle going up in altitude since ducks are flighted birds and they can get that high on their own. They used the rooster as a control since roosters can't fly the way most birds can. And they used a sheep to approximate what would happen to a human going up in altitude. They did the test flight in front of King Louis XVI of France and his queen, Marie Antoinette. This was just six years before the French Revolution. Needless to say, all three animals survived, so they were fine. But King Louis and Marie Antoinette would not be fine after the Revolution. Very quickly, humans were going up in hot air balloons. And how does a hot air balloon work? 
Before the mid-1800s, there was a view known as the caloric theory of heat. According to this view, heat is a weightless gas or fluid that people called caloric, which is why this is known as the caloric theory of heat. Eventually, though, we discovered that caloric doesn't exist. Instead, to speak somewhat simplistically, heat is a kind of energy that involves the motion of matter. As matter heats up, the molecules it's made of start moving around more, and as that happens, they tend to loosen up and expand. So if you have a balloon and you put a heat source under it, like a fire, the fire will cause the molecules of air inside the balloon to heat up, start moving around more, and expand. That makes the air in the balloon less dense than the surrounding air outside the balloon. It's like creating a partial vacuum instead of the hard vacuum that Father Lana de Terzi wanted to create. But even a partial vacuum, the lower air pressure inside the balloon, is good enough to work. Since the air inside the balloon is less dense than the outside air, it causes the balloon to float and gain altitude. But to keep the air inside the balloon from cooling off, you have to keep using a heat source to warm it up again, so you need a fuel source to run a hot air balloon. Are there ways around this so you don't have to use fuel to stay in the air? One way is to replace the air with a different gas. Our atmosphere is mostly nitrogen and oxygen, which are elements 7 and 8. The element number refers to how many protons they have, and it gives you an idea of how much they weigh. The higher the element number, the heavier the element is. So if you could fill a balloon with lighter elements that would be lighter than the surrounding air, it also would float. And you wouldn't need a fuel source to keep it floating. You just need to keep the lighter-than-air gas from escaping. In 1766, there was an English natural philosopher, or what today we'd call a scientist, named Henry Cavendish, who discovered element number one, or hydrogen, which has only a single proton. Hydrogen is much lighter than air, and so people started experimenting with filling balloons with hydrogen. In fact, the first hydrogen balloon flights took place in 1783, the same year as the first documented hot air balloon flight. So hydrogen balloons have been competing with hot air balloons from the beginning of manned flight. Though the very first hydrogen balloon flight was unmanned, it took off from Paris, from the site of what is now the Eiffel Tower, and the American statesman and diplomat Benjamin Franklin was there to watch it take off. And as the Firesign Theater mentions, Benjamin Franklin was the only president of the United States who was never president of the United States. In any event, the balloon flew 13 miles to a nearby village, and by that point, it had lost enough hydrogen that it started to descend. The villagers thought it was a monster attacking them from the sky, so they did what you should do when a monster is attacking you from the sky. They attacked it right back and defended the village using pitchforks, scythes, and short-barreled blunderbuss guns to destroy the menacing creature. Of course, what else would you do? So are there any downsides to using hydrogen in a balloon? 
Other than being attacked by peasants, you first have to make the hydrogen by extracting it from something else using a chemical reaction. But hydrogen is the single most common element in the universe, so it's not too hard once you know how. In fact, since water is H2O, you've got two hydrogen atoms in each molecule of water that you can separate out by electrolysis or running electricity through the water. The main downside is that hydrogen is a, hydrogen is just a little bit explodey. And by that, I mean it's extremely explodey. In an oxygen atmosphere, it burns extremely well. And once you burn hydrogen in an oxygen atmosphere, one of the products you get is our old friend hydroxylic acid. We talked about hydroxylic acid in episode 91 on the government acid conspiracy, where we discussed how the government is putting hydroxylic acid into our water supply without telling us. So go back and check out episode 91 if you'd like the facts on that. In any event, if you fill a balloon with hydrogen here on Earth, you have to be really careful or it can catch fire and explode. So are there other gases you can use instead of hydrogen? The best one is element two, or helium, which has two protons. It also has a couple of neutrons, so it's about four times as heavy as hydrogen, but it's still much lighter than the rest of our nitrogen-oxygen atmosphere, so a helium-filled balloon will still float. And the good news is that helium is a noble gas, and noble gases have that name because they're snooty. They're like noble men who don't like mixing with the common rabble. So noble gases don't usually react with other elements. They keep to themselves. As a result, helium won't burn and a helium balloon won't explode. The problem is it's harder to get helium. And for a long time, there were only a few places in the world that had industrial scale helium available. One of them was America. Consequently, when people started making airships, they tended to be filled with easy-to-get hydrogen rather than hard-to-get helium. And when were the first airships, as opposed to just balloons, made? The first one flew in 1852, and it was designed by the French engineer Henri Giffard. He designed what is known as the Giffard dirigible. Now, that's a new term. Listeners may have heard terms like dirigible, zeppelin, and blimp applied to different kinds of airships. So what do the terms mean? The term dirigible is short for dirigible balloon, and the word dirigible itself is from a French word meaning directable. If you go up in an ordinary hot air or hydrogen balloon, you don't have a lot of control over where it goes. It just kind of floats on the breeze. But people wanted to be able to direct where they went in flight, so Henri Giffard designed a dirigible or directable balloon. In addition to the big hydrogen-filled bag that kept it in the air, it also had a three-horsepower steam engine that would turn a propeller, as well as a vertical rudder. Between the propeller and the rudder, you could control where it went. You could steer it, so it was a directable dirigible. Another hydrogen dirigible was designed by the American physician and inventor Solomon Andrews, who offered his design to Abraham Lincoln during the American Civil War. 
He demonstrated it for the Smithsonian Institution in 1864, but the government really wasn't interested, and the Civil War was winding down anyway, so that didn't really go anywhere. So if that's what a dirigible is, what about blimps and zeppelins? Within the category of directable airships are subcategories, and the main ones have to do with the kind of structure that the craft's lifting body has. If the lifting body is just a big, squishy balloon, then it's called a blimp. Thus, the Goodyear blimp is a dirigible that you can steer, but it has a lifting body that's just a big, soft balloon filled with lighter-than-air gas. But you don't have to have the lifting body be a big, squishy balloon. You can also have a rigid body made of metal. This can include a skeleton made of metal girders or braces, along with a cloth or even metal skin, perhaps made of a lightweight metal like aluminum, which is element 13. And within this structure, you can hold the lighter-than-air gas, perhaps in one or more internal balloons or chambers. The guy who popularized this idea was the German inventor Count Ferdinand von Zeppelin, and so the rigid-body airships he and his company made came to be called Zeppelins. And by the 1920s and 1930s, these were becoming popular for transatlantic flights. Right. Think for a moment about the Empire State Building in New York City. They started working on it in 1930, and it was completed in 1931. At the time, it was the tallest building of the world, with the top around 1,450 feet above the ground. It remained the tallest building in the world until 1970, when they started work on the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center. But now, think about the top of the Empire State Building. It comes up to a mast-like point, and that point was originally intended to be a mooring mast for Zeppelins and other airships. The idea was that they'd use ropes to tie the airship to the mast at the top of the Empire State Building, and then you, the passenger, would get out of the airship and go into the Empire State Building at the top before going down the inside of the building and doing whatever you were there to do in New York City. Personally, I would find the idea of mooring to that mast 1,450 feet above the ground with winds blowing all around you and then climbing out of the airship and into the building absolutely terrifying. (laughs) And when the building opened in 1931, they found that the winds at that altitude were too strong. So they had to ditch the idea of using it as a mooring mast for Zeppelins. Big surprise. However, the key thing to remember is that blimps and Zeppelins are both dirigibles. They're both directable airships. But blimps have soft bodies while Zeppelins have rigid bodies. And is that what the Hindenburg was? Yes, the Hindenburg had a frame made of duralumin, which sounds a little like something from Star Trek, but is really a hardened alloy of aluminum. Ominously, some of the duralumin that went into the Hindenburg had been salvaged from the 1930 crash of the British airship R-101. So you had materials recycled from one doomed airship going into the structure of another doomed airship. And by the way, if you listen to Secrets of Doctor Who, you'll know that the eighth doctor and his companion, Charlie Pollard, were aboard the R-101 when it crashed. 
The man behind the Hindenburg was named Hugo Eckener, and he was the manager of the Zeppelin company at the time. He was an innovator in Zeppelin design, and he commanded record-setting flights on them. The airship was named Hindenburg after Paul von Hindenburg, who had been the president of Germany in the Weimar Republic between 1925 and 1934. Despite being personally opposed to Hitler, Hindenburg was pressured into appointing him chancellor of Germany in 1933 and gave him emergency powers after the infamous Reichstag fire. The airship Hindenburg was almost 800 feet long, making it three times longer than a 747 airplane, almost as long as the Titanic, and it, its gas cells would contain almost 5 million cubic feet of hydrogen. Now, did the Germans think of using helium for the Hindenburg instead of hydrogen? They did. In fact, they planned to use helium in the Hindenburg. It's what the craft was actually designed for. At the time, the United States had a near monopoly on helium production, with almost all of it being centered in the area around Amarillo, Texas. And in 1927, Congress passed the Helium Control Act, which banned the exportation of helium to foreign countries without congressional approval. Germany thought it could convince Congress to approve the export of helium for the project, but it couldn't, so they had to fall back on using hydrogen. And why didn't the U.S. want to export helium to Germany? Even though we weren't at war, people were wary of Germany and what it might do in the future. Construction on the Hindenburg began in 1931, just 12 years after World War I ended, and during the war, Germany had used Zeppelin airships to bomb targets. So people didn't want to be giving over resources that might be used soon in weapons delivery technology. People also were alarmed by the rise of fascism and European dictatorships in the early 1930s, like when Hitler came to power in 1933, and there was even a fascist coup attempt here in the United States in 1934, as we talked about back in episode 146. So there were reasons to be wary, and Congress was right to be suspicious, because in August 1939, the month before Hitler invaded Poland, Germany used the Hindenburg's sister ship, the Graf Zeppelin II, to spy on the British in preparation for the outbreak of war. How interested were the Nazis in the Hindenburg itself? They were quite interested. Hitler wanted to present Germany to the world as a strong, impressive, technologically sophisticated nation, and having a big, impressive, technologically sophisticated craft like the Hindenburg and its sister ships could do that. As a result, the Nazis had the Hindenburg do publicity flybys at their rallies in Nuremberg and at the 1936 Summer Olympic Games in Berlin. And of course, the Hindenburg was also an international airship, making flights connecting three continents, Europe, North America, and South America. It had been designed to be so big as to be physically impressive and to inspire wonder and admiration on the part of the people who saw it. We heard about that in Margaret Mather's account and how all the ships in Boston Harbor saluted them, how the airplanes circled and escorted the craft, and how people on the ground would pull over and hop out of their cars to marvel at the ship. There also were press stories about the Hindenburg and all the impressive modern things on it. 
As author Michael McCarthy writes in his book, The Hidden Hindenburg, They called it the Super Zeppelin, the fascinating Hindenburg, a ship of firsts. Even before it was constructed in its hangar, American newspaper syndicates had already reserved spots on its first flight to the United States, effectively its world debut. Eight reporters were on board that first week of May 1936 to chronicle the first piano concert on an airship, the first stewardess, the first Catholic mass, a record 106 people for a transoceanic flight, and an announcer from National Broadcasting Corp., or NBC, would transmit dispatches aboard, melding the craze in radio with the latest in aviation. It was so futuristic, a hundred people hurled over the ocean in a capsule. The Hindenburg itself was an experimental German aircraft, with its German engines and oil-burning diesel type never tried. Its windows were composed of a German chemical advance called plexiglass. For an exhibit, the transparent plastic was shaped into a see-through violin that would soon be a hit at an international exposition in Paris. The Germans appeared to be at the cutting edge of everything. So, yeah, there was a time when something as mundane as plexiglass was a big, impressive deal. The Hindenburg had even managed to solve one of the biggest problems of the day for airships. Since they were filled with hydrogen and hydrogen was very explodey, you didn't want open flames on airships. And as a result, you couldn't smoke on board, which meant that you couldn't smoke for several days if you were doing a transoceanic flight. And that was a problem because smoking was a normal part of the culture at the time. Captain Lehman was a pipe smoker. Hugo Eckener, the designer of the Hindenburg, was a cigar smoker. Most of the crew were smokers. Most of the passengers were smokers. So on early ships, like the Hindenburg's predecessor, the Graf Zeppelin I, you couldn't smoke, although that didn't stop some people from trying. McCarthy reports... On the flight back to Germany, Lehman was mortified to catch a passenger smoking, something clearly forbidden on a hydrogen-filled ship. Lehman and Eckner, along with most of the crew, were smokers themselves, but they both had to suffer through the long hours without puffing or risk blowing their ship to smithereens. Lehman was particularly sympathetic of passengers suffering withdrawal on the long flights. On one Germany-to-Brazil trip on the Graf Zeppelin, Lehman met a professional balloonist who was a heavy smoker. Lehman laid down the law, plainly. No cigarettes, no exceptions. The captain then handed him a small wrapped box. When you get the urge, he said, open it. Minutes later, the man unwrapped the package and found a shiny harmonica. My nearly uncontrollable urge to smoke never left me that whole crossing, recalled Ward von Orman, the grateful smoker. Before we were halfway across the South Atlantic, I had mastered Juanita on my new German harmonica. And giving little presents to people he barely knew was something Captain Lehman was known for. But there would be no need for him to give harmonicas to people aboard the Hindenburg because this problem had been solved. The ship would have a novel smoking room, erasing a serious shortcoming at a time when smoking was as natural as wearing hats. The smoking room had sealed doors along with a steward on duty to ensure that no one left with a lit cigarette. At a time when nearly everyone smoked, the room, which could seat eight people, removed a major aggravation of air voyages on hydrogen-filled ships. Another technical sleight of hand thanks to fireproof materials and German ingenuity. As Harold G. Dick of the Goodyear Zeppelin Company recalled, 
The only entrance to the smoking room, which was pressurized to prevent the admission of any leaking hydrogen, was via the bar, which had a swiveling airlock door, and all departing passengers were scrutinized by the bar steward to make sure they were not carrying out a lit cigarette or pipe. So actually having a smoking compartment on a hydrogen airship shows just how confident the German engineers were that they had solved the safety issues. But despite their efforts, we know how the story ended, and the Hindenburg went up in flames. The question is, why? And before we consider that question of why, we'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Mary Jean C., Toby T., Lynn F., Suzanne S. and Dennis S. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the catechism of the Catholic Church by Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. So, Jimmy, what theories are there about the Hindenburg disaster? Well, it's obvious what the main fuel source was for the Hindenburg's explosion. It was all the hydrogen stored in the lifting gas cells in its main body. Some have argued that the paint on the outer skin of the ship also contributed to starting the fire. The paint and everything else ultimately burned, but there are problems with that view. For example, Mythbusters did a test of this hypothesis, and it concluded that the paint wouldn't have played a role in getting the fire started. In any event, the hydrogen inside the ship was clearly the main fuel source. The question is, what set that gas off? And you could propose multiple explanations. Could it have been someone in the smoking compartment? Could it have been lightning? Could it have been static electricity from the air? Or sparks from the engine? Or sabotage, like a bomb planted on board the ship? And even once we've determined what the cause was, is there more to the story? Was there a cover-up after the disaster? Was it just a freak accident that nobody was responsible for? Or was it something that had been foreseen? All right, let's start with the reason perspective. What can we say about the Hindenburg disaster from the reason perspective? One of the key facts about the disaster, which is supported both by the testimony of the eyewitnesses on the ground and by the film footage we have, is that the fire started at the rear of the ship. You can see in the artwork for this episode that the back of the ship is on fire and the explosion is working its way forward towards the nose of the ship. Also, that's why the rear of the ship is lower and the front of the ship is pitching up at an angle because the hydrogen in the rear of the ship is no longer there to hold it aloft, so the back of the ship is sinking. And that's why Margaret and a bunch of the other passengers with her were thrown 15 to 20 feet against a rear wall as the ship started tilting downward towards the back. So whatever set off the explosion, it was something towards the rear of the vessel. And that allows us to eliminate our first theory. It wasn't anybody in the smoking compartment because the smoking compartment wasn't at the rear of the ship. It was way forward from there in the passenger area, which was located at the bottom of but still inside the main body. So whatever risk smoking may involve, it didn't blow up the Hindenburg. And then what about lightning? Could lightning have struck the rear of the vessel? 
It had been raining and even thunderstorming, which was part of why the Hindenburg got to the terminal late. True, but lightning regularly strikes airplanes, and it also strikes airships, including hydrogen-filled ones. The Hindenburg itself had been struck by lightning before several times, in fact, but this never previously resulted in an explosion because the hydrogen isn't in contact with oxygen which is what you need for that to happen. If the hydrogen is safely stored inside the Zeppelin's internal gas bags, it's not a problem. Advocates of the lightning hypothesis think that this was a special case, however. In order to get a ship like this to descend out of the sky, you need to shed some of the lifting gas that's keeping it afloat. As a result, the ship had been venting some hydrogen into the atmosphere bringing it into contact with oxygen. And if lightning struck where the oxygen and hydrogen were mixing above the ship, you could get a fire. This also would fit with part of what the eyewitnesses on the ground saw. They reported the fire starting not just at the back of the ship, but near the upper part of the back of the ship, which is where venting hydrogen would go since hydrogen is lighter than air and rises. But the lightning theory doesn't fit with the rest of what the eyewitnesses saw. Normally, lightning makes big flashes and booms when it strikes, and the eyewitnesses did not report seeing or hearing such a strike. As a result, normal lightning would not explain what happened to the ship. So what about sparks coming from the Hindenburg's engines? This also has been proposed, and there is some eyewitness testimony that could support it. A member of the ground crew named Robert Buchanan was working on the mooring lines when he looked up at the rear starboard engine underneath the ship. The wind had blown the ship out of position, so they were uh, putting the engine into reverse, and Buchanan reported seeing it backfire and admit a shower of sparks. Another ground crewman, Robert Shaw, also saw the sparks. And are there problems for this theory? Yes. Uh, First, the engines are below the body of the ship, not above it where people saw the fire start. So you wouldn't expect sparks to leap from below the ship all the way up to where the hydrogen gas was being vented. Also, engine sparks aren't hot enough to ignite hydrogen. The ignition temperature for hydrogen is 932 degrees Fahrenheit, almost 1,000 degrees. But the sparks from the engine exhaust only reach half of that, about 482 degrees Fahrenheit, so about 500 degrees, whereas it takes about 1,000 degrees to ignite hydrogen. Later, the Zeppelin company tried to duplicate the situation with tests, and they couldn't get the hydrogen to ignite based on engine sparks. So what about the most sensational theory, that it was sabotage? There have been multiple books written about this hypothesis, and it was used in the 1975 movie The Hindenburg, starring George C. Scott and Anne Bancroft. That movie was fiction, but the idea also was supported by some of the actual people involved. Initially, former Zeppelin company head Hugo Eckener speculated that it might have been sabotage, though he later changed his mind. Captain Max Proust, the man in charge of the doomed flight, thought it was sabotage, and Vice Admiral Charles Rosendahl, the American in charge of the Lakehurst Naval Air Station and the man in charge of the docking procedure, also thought it was sabotage. And with people like that favoring the sabotage idea, it sounds rather impressive. Initially, yes, but we have to be careful here. For example, Hugo Eckener wasn't at the site 
when the disaster happened. He was asleep in a hotel room in Austria. He only proposed sabotage as an initial guess for what might have happened, and once he got to look at the evidence, he changed his mind. Captain Proust was the man in charge of the ship itself, and he had a vested interest in not having something like human error blamed. That could be an error like mishandling the ship during its landing, or it could have been a far earlier error like failing to notice damage that could and should have been repaired under his watch. So blaming somebody not acting under his authority like a saboteur was in his self-interest. Admiral Rosendahl also was responsible for the ground side aspect of the landing and could have similar self-interest. And Rosendahl was one of the biggest apologists for airship travel, which was starting to face competition from airplanes. As a prominent cheerleader for airship travel, it was in his interest to make it sound completely safe, and that would incentivize him to consider the sabotage theory. Still, it really isn't about the incentives that these men may have had. It's about what evidence can be marshaled to support the sabotage hypothesis. What does the evidence say? One way of approaching it is to consider how the sabotage could have been performed. It could have happened either by someone on the ground before the Hindenburg left Germany, during the flight by someone on board the ship, or by someone on the ground in New Jersey. If it happened before the Hindenburg left Frankfurt, it presumably would have been something like planting a bomb on the ship. But if so, why didn't the crew find the bomb during the flight? They were doing their regular work inside the ship, with riggers climbing all around and up and inside the ship, including towards the rear and the upper portion of the uh, the gas bags. And so why didn't they find the bomb? And why would the bomb be set for the time of the disaster? The Hindenburg arrived hours late because of the weather. If it had been on schedule, it would have been empty at the time the bomb would, would have been set to go off. And investigators never found evidence of a bomb. What about the idea someone on board the ship caused the explosion? This person would have to have either been a member of the crew or one of the passengers. And they would have had to have been suicidal because they had no way of knowing if they'd survive the disaster. Suicidal people can get on board aircraft and try to take them down, but it's not very common. So that would point us away from this theory unless we had evidence to support it. And we don't. There was no evidence found for a bomb, and nobody was reported as being suicidal. Also, the passengers typically didn't have access to the rear part of the ship where the fire started. And even if somebody, a crew or passenger, um, had planted a bomb in the rear of the ship, why didn't the crew find it during their regular activities? Ultimately, this view is improbable speculation that's not supported by positive evidence. And what about someone on the ground at Lakehurst sabotaging the vessel as it was landing? The most obvious way to do this would be to shoot something incendiary at the ship. But what would that be? Someone firing mortar rounds would have been seen. Bazookas didn't come into use until 1942. 
a flamethrower definitely would have been seen and would not have reached hundreds of feet up in the air. And a bullet from a normal gun would not have been hot enough. Bullets get their heat primarily from friction with the barrel as they come out of the gun, and they only get up to about 500 degrees Fahrenheit, which is why they don't normally catch things on fire. And you need around 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit to ignite hydrogen. Also, there were huge numbers of people present on the ground to witness the disaster. All 200 members of the ground crew, plus other people working at the Naval Air Station, the reporters covering the event with their cameras, and the families who had come to meet their relatives. If somebody on the ground was shooting something capable of reaching the ship and setting it on fire, as improbable as that would be, Somebody should have seen the act of sabotage, and nobody did. Ultimately, after the disaster, both America and Germany conducted investigations and neither found evidence of sabotage. It may be sensational to think about this possibility, but in the end, it's not supported by the evidence. What's the most probable theory of what happened? To the minds of most serious researchers, the most likely explanation is that the disaster was produced by something electrical, but not something as dramatic as lightning. Instead, it was produced by static electricity. When a craft moves through the sky, it picks up static electricity on its outer skin. And normally that's not a problem because the craft isn't grounded, so the electricity doesn't have anywhere to go. But if you connect the ship to the ground by something conductive, it can cause a spark. And if there's also hydrogen and oxygen present, that can set off a fire. So the idea is that the Hindenburg had a hydrogen gas leak toward its stern, and the gas was combining with oxygen between the outer fabric skin of the ship and the inner metallic framework. The outer skin was charged with static electricity from the trip. The ship's mooring lines were attached to the metal framework, and when the mooring lines hit the ground, it grounded the ship, allowing sparks to jump from the outer skin to the metal framework, to the mooring lines, down to the ground. And as that spark passed from the outer skin to the metal framework, it went through the hydrogen-oxygen mix that was under the skin, and boom. Were the ropes really conductive? Wouldn't they use a non-conductive material to prevent precisely this kind of thing? The ropes were made out of hemp, which is not normally that conductive. But this wasn't a normal situation because it was raining and water is electrically conductive. That's why you don't want an electrical device falling into the bathtub with you, like a radio or a hairdryer. It can electrocute you. So the theory is that the rain caused the hemp ropes to become more conductive than normal, and that allowed the electricity to pass from the ship to the ground. In fact, very recently, in May of 2021, the PBS science documentary program NOVA released an episode where they tested this theory. They got copies of the type of ropes that were used to moor the Hindenburg, sprayed water on them using a handheld water spritzer, and they found that they became quite electrically conductive. In fact, when only slightly wet, the rope was 10 times more electrically conductive, confirming the probability of that part of the theory. 
Were there other parts that needed to be confirmed? There were two. First, the Zeppelin company was aware of the static electricity issue, and so they'd taken steps to counteract it. They put an air gap between the outer skin and the middle frame of the ship by inserting small, non-conductive wooden dowels to keep them apart, so little wooden rods. So the Nova team tested that, too. They got the same kind of cloth that the skin was made out of and treated it with the same substances. They air-gapped it from the metal frame using the same kind of rods. Afterwards, they charged the skin electrically and started spritzing water on it to simulate rain. And when they started spritzing it with water, there was a dramatic spark that burned its way through the treated cloth. So this part of the theory also has confirmation as probable. And you said there was another part that needed to be confirmed as well. What was that? One of the mysteries connected with the disaster is why, if the static electricity theory is true, the ship didn't ignite the moment the mooring ropes hit the ground. I mean, static electricity sparks happen suddenly, like when you shock yourself after walking across a carpet and then reach for something metal. According to the timeline of the disaster, though, the fire didn't start until about four minutes after the mooring ropes were dropped. So what could explain that delay? The Nova team considered this, and they realized that the ship had been turned into a capacitor. In fact, each of the different cells under the skin of the ship had been turned into a capacitor, so there were multiple ones. Capacitors are used in electronics, but many of our listeners may not be familiar with them. So what are they and how do they work? A capacitor is a device that stores electricity, but it's different than a battery. Batteries store the energy in a chemical way, but capacitors store it as an electric field. The way capacitors work is they typically have two surfaces which receive opposite charges with a gap or barrier in between them. As the capacitor charges, the surfaces build up positive and negative electrical charges until the charge is strong enough to jump across the gap. What the Nova team proposed was that this is what was happening with the outer skin and the internal metal framework of the Hindenburg. The outer skin was being positively charged from contact with the air, and the inner frame was being negatively charged from the ground. But the spark wouldn't happen until the charge had built up enough. So the Nova team calculated how long it would take for that to happen, and guess what they found? That it would take four minutes for the Hindenburg to charge? Exactly. It would take approximately four minutes to charge for the charge to build to the point that it would jump across the air gap between the skin and the frame. So the ropes hit the ground in the rainstorm, with the hydrogen leak in place, and four minutes later, boom. And the four-minute delay is evidence confirming this theory. So this looks like what happened. Is this just a freak accident then, something that nobody is to blame for? I mean, they'd already had the foresight to put an air gap between the skin and the frame, and it required multiple factors to defeat that. The rain on the skin, the ropes to get, and the ropes together with the presence of an unexpected hydrogen leak. Nobody would be to blame if nobody foresaw something like this happening. But here's where the story takes a twist. Just recently, in 2020, investigative reporter Michael McCarthy released a book called The Hidden Hindenburg, The Untold Story of the Tragedy, 
The Nazi Secrets, and The Quest to Rule the Skies. During the course of his investigation, he located and reviewed documents that nobody had paid attention to in decades. The documents revealed that somebody had foreseen the accident, and that after the disaster, there was a cover-up to keep it from coming to public attention. What did Mike McCarthy find? Well, to set the stage a little bit, let's go back for a moment and talk about Captain Ernst Lehman, the little captain who was on board the Hindenburg, even though he wasn't in charge of the flight, because that was Captain Max Pruss. Lehman himself was extraordinarily well qualified. The Pittsburgh Press newspaper had described him as the best airship pilot in the world. But Captain Lehman was fairly newly married, and he had a two year old son who had fallen ill and died on Easter Sunday just a few weeks earlier. If he wasn't in charge and his son had just died, why was he on board? Why didn't he stay home to grieve with his wife instead of coming on the trip as an observer? That's one of the things that McCarthy uncovered. He found a letter from one of Lehman's friends, a man named uh, Linhard Adelt. Adelt was himself a passenger on the Hindenburg. He survived, and afterwards he wrote a letter to the American Commission investigating the disaster. In the letter, he said, Captain Lehman, contrary to not newspaper reports, was not with us at the moment of the catastrophe. We first saw each other again in the Lakehurst Naval Hospital when we were receiving provisional treatment for our injuries. Lehman had full confidence in Captain Max Bruss, whom he described to me as our best captain, and had asked me to see to it that only Pruss was identified as the commander in the press, and not, incorrectly, him. He was worried, however, since a gas cell had been found to have worn through on the upper hanging side when the Hindenburg was overhauled over the winter. He said, what if the damage had happened during a trip or were to happen again to another gas cell? His concern was increased by the fact that the young next generation lacked the decades of practical experience that the older people had in fixing things, and it was primarily for this reason that he came along on the trip, in order to keep an eye on them. So the reason Captain Lehman was on board was because he wanted to keep an eye on the younger, less experienced crew members in case a problem developed like the one that appeared the previous winter. That is, one of the gas cells inside the ship becoming worn through so it would leak. You see, just like a cruise ship, the Hindenburg had seasons in which it flew and seasons when it didn't. Uh, during the winter 1936 off-season, they did an overhaul of the ship, and they discovered that there was chafing on one or more of the internal gas bags that had worn through them, putting the ship in jeopardy of hydrogen gas leaks. What was causing the gas cells to become worn? They found out that it was being caused by a design flaw in the ship itself. Ever since it launched, the Hindenburg had been suffering from unexpected rattling vibrations of the outer skin during the flight. This vibration translated down into the wiring system that was producing wear on the gas cells. And these were structural wires rather than electrical ones. They held the gas bags in place. But the wires were under physical tension. So when the ship's outer covering fluttered, the wires rattled and they could abrade and damage the gas cells and cause them to burst. In fact, Captain Lehman believed that was what had happened to cause the British R-101 disaster. McCarthy writes, 
Fixing the gas bag abrasion problem promised to be expensive. After some debate about who was at fault, the balloon maker or the Hindenburg factory, Karl Roche, lead engineer for the technical department, weighed in. We recommend reporting damage to the gas cell of 129 just as any other warranty-covered damage that occurred during airship construction, he wrote to Captain Lehman on January 20, 1937. This is a matter of design flaw. In the one-sentence telegram, the technical leader put two words together that were an explosive combination. Zellenschaden, Konstruktionsfehler, Gasel Damage, Design Flaw. Captain Lehman knew better than anyone what it meant. The engineers were going to have to stop the Hindenburg's destructive flutter. Time was running out. Time was running out because the Hindenburg's spring flying season was coming up, and they didn't have long to fix the problem, which was a design flaw in the ship itself. So they made makeshift repairs. Factory hands went to work securing the wiring that held the gas bags in place. The wiring was designed as a barrier between the gas cell and the hull, or outer cover of the ship. It was there to protect the gas cell fabric from puncturing on the hull's structural metal rings. Each gas cell in its netting looked like a ham in its meat netting, except with the ham pressing upward. To eliminate the vibration of the wires, the workers painstakingly tied off each of the hundreds of spots where the wiring crossed. The idea was that when the tied-up wires resonated with the outer cover flutter, they would act as one large grid, thus dampening tremors that could tear fabric. They tied the wiring crossings together with cord and then taped them there. Wherever they spotted abrasions on a cell from the wires rattling, they glued one-and-a-half-inch reinforcing strips over them. The Hindenburg, which started second season held together, it turned out, with twine and tape. As an anti-flutter step, the engineering department quietly added one more step to the winter overhaul, painting the entire top half of the Hindenburg with two new coats of dope, a lacquer. It must have puzzled the painters hanging from scaffolding on the ceiling and perched on dizzying fire ladders. The extra dope from the equator of the ship up added considerable weight, each coat covering more than three and a half acres of fabric. So, newly painted, and with its structural wiring system patched up with string and tape, they sent the Hindenburg off for its spring flying season. But the ship encountered heavy headwinds on the crossing, and it is likely that the built-in design flaw reasserted itself and caused the wiring to damage the gas bags, resulting in the hydrogen leak that caused the explosion. You said McCarthy discovered all this. Why hasn't it been talked about until now? because it looks like there was a cover-up. After all, the Hindenburg disaster was a huge embarrassment for the Nazis, and if it turned out that it was due to a design flaw in the ship itself, that wouldn't speak well for the high-tech, precision German engineering narrative the Nazis were trying to sell the world. And there is evidence that the Nazis recognized what the problem with the Hindenburg was because they then made changes to its sister ship, the Graf Zeppelin II, to keep the problem from happening again. But it wouldn't do to expose this to a world audience. As a result, when Hugo Eckener, the former head of the Zeppelin company, came over from Germany to testify at the American Commission investigating the disaster, he didn't mention anything about the design flaw or the repairs that had been made to fix it. Instead, he proposed an entirely different scenario. 
He speculated that the captains on board the vessel had ordered the pilot to make a sharp turn upon landing, causing one of the gas bags to be punctured by a bracing wire that suddenly snapped because of the sharp turn. That made this a matter of pilot error, with the pilot being ordered to push the ship past its design limitations, rather than there being a design flaw in the ship itself. But the officers on board disputed this. Ekener was throwing them under the bus, and they pointed out that Ekener wasn't there, that he was back in Austria, and that he was just speculating. And they were there, and this simply did not happen and is contradicted by eyewitnesses. And the commission and the press believed Ekener? Yes, he was famous in his own right. In fact, at the time, he was as famous as Charles Lindbergh, the man who did the first solo airplane flight across the Atlantic. Ekener had flown the Hindenburg's predecessor ship, the Graf Zeppelin I, around the entire world in a circumnavigation flight. So with the prestige of his reputation, his theory was accepted by many, even though it was contradicted by the eyewitnesses. And he did not disclose the discovery of the design flaw or the attempts to rectify it during the winter overhaul of the ship. He thus saved face for the Nazis. Was he sympathetic to the Nazis? You wouldn't know it from what he said later. After the war, after Germany lost, he wrote an autobiography in which he portrayed himself as an anti-Nazi resistor. But McCarthy uncovered multiple pieces of evidence that point in the other direction. Before the war, propaganda minister Josef Goebbels asked Ekener to give a pro-Hitler speech, which he did, and it was broadcast all over Germany. He also helped the Nazis with their espionage efforts, which involved sending the Graf Zeppelin II on spy missions. And during the war, he helped with the German V-2 rocket. He also did other self-serving things in his autobiography. For example, he did things to tarnish the reputations of others, including Captain Lehman, and he falsely claimed to have tried to get, this is falsely, remember, tried to claim get to get the safe gas, helium, from the United States for use in the Hindenburg, the Hindenburg specifically. This made it look like the U.S. was at fault for the disaster for not giving Germany the gas and causing them to use hydrogen. However, the records show that he did not ask for helium for the Hindenburg. Instead, he asked for helium for its sister ship, the Graf Zeppelin II, which was being prepared to be used as a Nazi spy vessel. Unfortunately, Ekener's book hasn't been challenged until now. It's been taken at face value, and it's been used as a key source in books and investigations of what happened to the Hindenburg. So his story has been uncritically accepted until now. So what can we say about the Hindenburg disaster from the faith perspective? If it was just a freak accident that nobody foresaw, then nobody was at fault here. But if, as McCarthy's investigation suggests, people had recognized a design flaw that ultimately contributed to the explosion, the matter is more complex. They tried to fix the problem by doing makeshift repairs during the winter overhaul, and it would then have been a question of whether they reasonably thought that they had fixed the problem or not. It's easy in hindsight to say they didn't, but that may not have been clear at the time. 
As a result, it's hard to assess what level of moral responsibility they had for letting the ship fly again, given the repairs they'd done. We can say that Captain Lehman was concerned enough that, despite the death of his son and his difficult personal situation, he wanted to be on the ship to monitor what was happening and to help out the younger, inexperienced crew in case a problem did develop. That actually speaks well of his character. He was putting himself at risk to try to help others, and that adds an even more heroic element to what Margaret Mather thought of him. But things don't look so good for Hugo Ekener. No, it's hard to know precisely what level of sympathy he did or didn't have for the Nazis. And many people in Germany had to do things that they didn't want to do because of the extremely tough situation. So we can't be too harsh on him. He even could have been ordered not to disclose the design flaw at the American hearings. And he and his, he and his family could have been in danger if he had. But there is some evidence pointing to him being sympathetic to the Nazis. After all, he lied in his biography after the war. If he really was pro-Nazi, then he lied about that fact, and you can understand why. What is less understandable is his lie after the war about having sought to get helium from the United States for the Hindenburg, when in fact he did not. Overall, his less-than-fully-accurate autobiography and the effect it has had on subsequent treatments of the disaster doesn't speak well of him. Finally, from the faith perspective, we can also pray for all of the victims of the Hindenburg disaster, because as Benedict XVI pointed out in his encyclical on Christian hope, Spes Salvi, God is outside the earthly reckoning of time, and it is never too late to pray for someone. That's right. So what happened as a result of the Hindenburg disaster? What effect did it have on the airship industry? Well, obviously, these days we take airplanes rather than dirigibles. Uh, in part, that's because by the 1940s, airplane technology was greatly improving and they were turning out to be more useful, economical and safer than airships. But the Hindenburg disaster also played a role here. It basically killed commercial passenger travel on airships. After the Hindenburg, even its sister ship, the Graf Zeppelin II, didn't carry passengers, uh, not even after they made the new safety improvements. Of course, there are still airships, but they're used for other purposes, like the Goodyear blimp, which is used for advertising rather than commercial passenger travel. The Sanyo Electronics Company also has a white blimp with interior lights that they use for advertising at night. Back in the 1990s, I saw the Sanyo blimp from a distance at night, and I could make out that there was a silent hovering oval light over there, but I couldn't see the logo clearly. If I hadn't known what it was, I might have thought it was a UFO. So maybe the Sanyo blimp is responsible for some UFO sightings. <laughs> that would be interesting. So one final question. Uh, we started our story today with Margaret Mather. What happened to her? Obviously, she survived the crash, or she wouldn't have been able to write the article for Harper's Monthly Magazine that we quoted. She ended up living for another 32 years, and she passed away in Rome in 1969 at the ripe old age of 91. Very good. And Jimmy, what is your bottom line on the Hindenburg? The Hindenburg was an impressive ship, and it would have been fascinating to see it in person back in 1937. 
the Hindenburg disaster was a great tragedy, and we can only be thankful that more people weren't killed. The tragedy was likely caused by a hydrogen leak that was then touched off by static electricity. The Nova team's proposal is the most probable version of the mechanical side of what happened that I'm aware of. And Michael McCarthy's proposal regarding the surrounding events are the most probable version of the human side of what happened that I'm aware of. It is quite possible that the hydrogen leak was caused by a design flaw that was not fully fixed, and it's quite possible that Ekener and the Nazis conducted a cover-up afterwards to save the Reich embarrassment. So, Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to the listener and viewer? We'll have a link to Michael McCarthy's book, The Hidden Hindenburg, also the 2021 Nova episode, Margaret Mather's article, I Was on the Hindenburg from Harper's Magazine, also articles on the Hindenburg, the Hindenburg disaster, a website called Faces of the Hindenburg, where you can read about people who were on board, information on the history of ballooning, uh, Father Fran uh, Francesco Lanza de Terzi, Bartholomew de Guzmao, uh, Henri Giffard, Solomon Andrews, Ferdinand von Zeppelin, information on airships, uh, nighttime video of the Sanyo blimp, so you could see see it at night and how it lights up and could look like a UFO. And finally, uh, we'll have a link to Dan Grossman's sync of the audio and video of the Hindenburg disaster. All right. Very good. So, Jimmy, what do we have for mysterious headlines this week? This week, we have an unrecognized planets theme because we have, uh, you know, one of the problems today is science denialism. And there's a lot of science denialism about the all the planets we have in our solar system. A bunch of lying liars who lie will tell you that we <laughs> only have eight. But actually, we have more than 100 planets in our solar system by the rational definition of what a planet is. That is to say, an object that by its nature is massive enough so that it's round, but not so massive that it starts to have fusion and become a star. Um, fortunately, the forces of rationality are reasserting themselves in their campaign against blighted planet ignorance. <laughs> and so we'll have a link to an article from Universe Today talking about the fact that that many moons are planets and how that's uh, coming to be recognized by some. Also, we'll have an article by Science Alert about a new paper by some rational astronomers who are seeking to reclassify Pluto as a planet because it obviously is. We have to overcome planet denialism. That's for indeed. Sure. <laughs> All right. Those are excellent headlines. So that's it from us. What did you, the listener, think about the Hindenburg and the most famous air disaster of the 20th century? You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page. You can send an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or send a tweet to at mys underscore world or by calling our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. 
So, Jimmy, what are we going to be talking about next time? Next week, we're going to be talking with Major Bill Ray, one of the Army's remote viewers from Project Stargate. For a time in the 1980s, he commanded the remote viewing unit at Fort Meade, Maryland. He also happens to be a Catholic, so we'll be talking about how he understands remote viewing from the faith perspective. Excellent. That sounds like it's going to be an interesting discussion. So, folks, be sure to join the StarQuest fan club by texting StarQuest to 66866. Send StarQuest to 66866. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember to help us continue to produce the podcast please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by Fearvento Law, PLLC, specializing in adult guardianships and conservatorships, probate and estate planning matters, accepting clients throughout Michigan, taking into account your individual health care, financial and religious needs. Visit fearventolaw.com, F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O law.com. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, The Secrets of Star Wars. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash Star Wars.